Hello and welcome on The Barricades. This is a podcast produced by Eastern European journalists and academics. And I am your host, Maria Cernat. With me, as usual, is the co-host of the show, the Bulgarian-born Polish journalist Bojan Stanislavski. Thank you for being here with us. And now to our special guest, Stanislav Bishok. Stanislav Bishok um, is a political scientist, teaches at the Moscow State University. He wrote a book on the events taking place in Ukraine in 2014. And he's a political observer, commentator. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to be here, Maria Boyan. So... Um, It is always an honor to have you, and I think it's very important to have people whose countries are directly involved in this conflict and let Russians speak about what's going on in Russia. And uh, the first uh, question I want to ask you, Stanislav, is the following. Over the past month, we saw the, the Western media covering a lot this conflict, and especially Russia. And, of course, the tone was very critical, but not only the critical tone was not only directed against the authorities in Kremlin, Vladimir Putin, the government, military officials, but also Russia in general was presented in a negative light. So I want to ask you first as a Russian citizen and then, As a political scientist, what do you think is the biggest problem in the way the Western media portrayed you, the Russians, the ordinary people? Well, I think the central negative point uh, is uh, uh, the absence of nuances. Because uh, when they speak about, let's say, Ukraine, uh, we see different faces, different opinions. We have politicians like regular guys, uh, soldiers on the front line, etc., etc. But when they speak about Russia, they sort of totalize Russia, homogenize Russia. So Russia is a is one entity that is, that wants to conquer Ukraine or do something bad uh, to Ukraine or to the West. Uh, but the nuances they are uh, absence uh, in this coverage. Of course, there was. Of course, yes, there was uh, some coverage on the those Russians who decided to relocate. Uh, to leave Russia uh, in uh, during this this year, uh, but at the same time, generally speaking, if we if they uh, say something about Russia, it's it, it's a it's a global generalization. I mean, of course, as a political scientist, I know that uh, uh, you cannot be a citizen of a country which is at war with uh, with another country without being in a way involved. So you cannot say that no, I'm not at war with that country because you are a citizen, right? But at the same time, as a citizen, uh, as a human being, of course, you have different opinions on different subjects, including the subjects whether or not uh, it was a good idea uh, or, uh, in the first place to, to start this military campaign. Uh, Do you think it was a good idea? Was it a no. good idea? No, I've been saying this from, from day one. Uh, uh, it, uh, from, uh, you know, uh, recently uh, I ran across an interview that I gave, I think, on the third day uh, of this military campaign. And this interview was never published because, uh, as I was informed, uh, it was against the, uh, against the general line of the uh, news outlet uh, that interviewed me. Uh, and you know what? Uh, it is sad to say uh, that everything 
almost everything that uh, I predicted in that interview. It was rather long, I think, three or three and a half uh, standard word pages. I was like predicting certain things that would happen even if uh, uh, Russia succeeded in taking Kiev, for example. So I described certain negative uh, 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 negative outcomes of this uh, of this conflict, and uh, now one day, uh, one one year, almost one year uh, into the conflict. Well, unfortunately, I was right, and those who censored me, they turned out to be wrong. So I think uh, in a week or so, uh, I would publish uh, this uh, lost interview on my social media, just not just to brag that uh, I am such a good, you know, analyst and I uh, can foresee the future, but just to for just to uh, to uh, just to, to to make sure that sometimes I mean even in the initial phases of certain uh, big events uh, it is possible to uh, to foresee uh, to foresee the future. And what was the most um, how should I say um, negative thing that you predicted that you foresaw when you wrote that interview? Well. It is complicated because uh, there are few things uh, that uh, would be solved. There are few uh, problems Russia faces, general problems that would be solved by this uh, uh, by, by this military campaign. But there are more things uh, that would uh, uh, come into being after this conflict, and that's that's exactly what happened. Because it's uh, as we see, the conflict has been internationalized so to speak so now it's not just about russia and ukraine so it's about like russia and the uh the collective west so to speak so uh and you know uh, some people uh haven't heard this uh, proverb right uh, uh beware of what, what you wish for right because uh i mean even prior to to this conflict like 10 years prior 15 years prior there were people in, in russia including in the uh, high ranks of the government who claimed or hinted at that we're generally we're at war with the collective West. Well, now you have a war with the, with the collective West, but uh, I'm not sure that those people are happy now, those who predicted. And be, be, it's interesting that uh, some people in the in the higher echelons of the Russian government, who are considered rightly so to be uh, conspiracy theorists, they are, you know, not all of them are quite happy uh, with this war. And even prior to this war, some of them said that well, uh, uh, we should we should try to do our best to to reach a compromise with Ukraine. So that's uh, that uh, that was something uh, something puzzling and something that surprised me because I saw I, I thought that all conspiracy theorists who uh, who claim about the the existence of the collective West and uh, uh, I thought they were all you know hawks, but some of them turned out to be more more dovish than than I expected. Okay, but in in this uh, in this context, because you mentioned the word consensus or uh, not consensus, but what you said, uh, compromise, right? So you said that uh, some people who appeared hawkish in in the past, they now seem to be talking uh, how they 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 had actually they have actually always thought that some kind of compromise with Ukraine uh, would make sense. And I suppose that there are there is a layer of people in Russia who probably think that way. Although, judging by what I can read in the Russian media, this doesn't seem to be a big percentage. Now, you can tell me whether this is correct or not, but this is the prevailing message that the 
that the Russian media is conveying that, you know, everybody is with Putin and everybody is behind him, everybody rallies behind the special military operations, so on and so forth. Of course, the word everybody is is not the accurate word. They they say that the majority of the nation, 85% or something, there are polls after polls, including Levada, which is not very friendly to Putin, to say, to say the least. And, uh, you know, they... The thing here is is whether you can can somehow try and explain how those people, and perhaps this is also part of your thinking maybe, how do they imagine a potential compromise with Ukraine? Because those who have, including people who have been on our program, who have advocated in one way or another to some extent or another in favor of the special military operation or war or however you want to refer to it, they they said that unfortunately, or many of them, not all of them, but many of them had said, unfortunately, this is a very dire situation where the Russian state, the Russian political class was compelled, coerced almost, to invade Ukraine because all other, all the alternatives to this scenario, despite this one being very bad, those alternatives were worse. And, you know, they have some convincing arguments. They, they, they were not trying to put forward some kind of crazy conspiracies here. So I wonder if you could just try and encapsulate here within like, I don't know, three, five, seven minutes, what is the argumentation behind we should have had held it in a different manner. We should have handled it differently. We should have had a compromise. Well, uh, uh, look, uh, in today's world, the the idea that uh, if you have a, ter- a border conflict with a, with another state, uh, the only way to solve it is to wage a war is a bad idea. Because now it seems that uh, the more the more prudent and the, the more smart idea is just to to manage the conflict without uh, uh, letting him degrade uh, into a war, like Russia has a territorial dispute with Japan for well since uh, since 1945, right? So no big deal. Uh, there is a territorial uh, dispute between uh, 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 Cyprus and the Tur- Turkish Republic of Cyprus on the north for since 1970 something. So. Uh, there is a territorial dispute or, or a kind of territorial dispute between mainland, mainland China and Taiwan. So there are different things. And if you if you just uh, if you're not sure that uh, you can definitely uh, decide uh, this conflict uh, to your favor by using uh, weapons, well, maybe you should abstain from from doing this. The same, I think, applied uh-huh. to... So what you're saying, sorry, just to make it clear. So what you're saying is that, hey, guys, if you want to go to war, you should have made sure that you can really fix it quickly and, and in a painless manner, not like in this stretch out, stretched out conflict, which, you know, we can't even see the end game of it. Is that yeah, what you're saying? But, but the point is uh, here is that you never know the consequences. Mm-hmm. Because if you just uh, compare, like, the, uh, the military strength once again, it's not, it's not the only uh, it's not the only variable here, because if you if you uh, look back uh, into history, like the United States and Vietnam, for example, or China and Vietnam, uh, right, or uh, the United States and let's say uh, and Afghanistan, so mm-hmm. it, or Saudi Arabia and uh, some factions uh, in uh, uh, in uh, uh, in. Uh, with 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 Houthis, right? So uh, 
once again so it, it's not it's not the only thing i mean uh, if if we uh, and this this is exactly the point uh, uh the russian authorities to the best of my knowledge to the best of my understanding they uh, sort of they, at the same time they underestimated and overestimated the ukrainian nationalism they overestimated the ukrainian nationalism in a way that now they still claim that ukraine well some some of some of the authorities of some of the uh, pro kremlin speakers still claim that ukraine is sort of occupied by neo nazi regime or something like this so this is the point of overestimation right but at the same time they underestimated the uh, the the national or nationalist spirit uh, of ukrainians and their desire to well to defend their their motherland because according according to all opinion polls that i'm aware of like 95% or something like this of ukrainians they like support uh, continuation of the of the war until the uh, ukraine uh, the ukrainian army uh, 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 takes control of all the borders of ukraine including even crimea but the situation with opinion polls including the opinion polls conducted by uh by uh, uh, uh like let's say by uh, opposition uh pollsters uh for russia the situation is a bit more different and it does not depend necessarily on a person's attitude to ukraine it depends on the person's attitude towards the government and vladimir putin in general so let me give you some numbers some uh, uh estimations like around 75 or 80% of the russians uh, according to opinion polls they support the war effort but at the same time among these like 85% the vast majority like 80% they say that if vladimir putin if the government changes its policy towards ukraine and for example decides to stop uh to stop the military action and to return to a negotiating table this majority of those who support the uh, military they would support this decision as well uh, uh, but the the same is not true yes even though it's contradictory in a sense yeah it's contradictory but it's also you know i i've when i read the russian media then especially the commentators i mean the people who are in my opinion at least trying or well at least at least is the wrong we used uh, phrase here but people who are trying to go against the stream to some extent to one extent like you know it's difficult for me to of course estimate what what they can afford and what they cannot afford to perhaps say depending on the outlet that they are publishing uh in you know all those nuances are unfortunately i mean unfortunately in a sense i have no access to 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 those nuances i don't know how it works but uh you know if i when i compare when i compare the polish media syndicate or the polish media establishment and the russian media establishment then you know i tend to uh to see more pluralism in within the russian media landscape than within the polish which is much more unitary much more uh condensed around 1 2 3 less than 5 issues you know all of the sides like across the poli- all of the camps across the political spectrum they say pretty much the same thing about all the most those most important uh elements that you know construct the international or even you know interna- like domestic reality but uh that's why i'm kind of you know i'm making that point because i think it's important for people to kind of you know have this sort of comparison that like okay there are problems perhaps with the freedom of expression here and there but you know 
those those countries could tend to criticize Belarus, Russia, or I don't know Cuba, or Venezuela, or whatever, or China for that matter. Uh, they are not so uh, doing so well in in those terms. But that was just a digression. Now, like with regards with, with regards to the question of of Vladimir Putin, his support and the support of his political actions by the people who rally behind him. Now. Again, basing myself on what I what I've heard from the important opinion makers in the Russian media sphere, they seem to say that Putin is not strong. Many of them seem to say Putin is not doing the best job here. Putin is not being strong enough. His military is not as competent as he thought it would be in a situation of a, of an actual military conflict. And he's not doing enough and if he keeps believing that that he has endless amounts of time if he keeps believing that he can you know be at war with what they refer to as the kiev regime for like the next five years this is not true because the people aren't going to handle it well and the people at some point are going to start asking questions should was it really worth it to go there you know i mean the the coffins are going to be uh flown back to russia in some numbers like uh, you know I don't believe the figures that are provided by the Western press, but I believe that there are casualties and they are severe. And, you know, this seems to contradict what you're saying. That's why I'm wondering if this is just like really the Russian society or the Russian public opinion can really be treated as as a bunch of Putin fanatics, like whatever he does, they will follow him. Or maybe it there is an element that they they feel that he's doing the right, he's, he has taken the right decision, but they are prepared to evaluate it negatively and go against him in, in terms of voting or, or some other kinds of protests? Well, Boyan, I think uh, we should speak not about Putin fanatics, but about statists. Mm-hmm. So they are like, statists and they associate the current president with the state and the decisions of the president as the, uh, uh, the, the decisions that are good for the state because he's the mm-hmm. man who knows what the state wants, even if we do not understand it, but he knows better. He knows best. He, he, uh, he, has, he has, has this, uh, you know, has this vision. So that is why this percentage uh, points. So uh, the majority, uh, well, th- th- that at least uh, that's, that's how I interpret the situation. Uh, the majority supports Putin, hence they support his decisions. So uh, they support the war effort not because they really believe or really believed uh, like a year ago that Ukraine was run by a bunch of uh, neo-Nazis and uh, etc. But just because, well, if our government, if our president says that it's important, uh, it's necessary, it's the mm-hmm. uh, vital or existential mm-hmm. threat, that's why we, we support him, we support this war effort. That, that's, the, that's the thing. And indeed, uh, uh, some... Uh, some public speakers, including those who were considered, let's say, Westerner, uh, Westernizers or liberals or even the fifth column of the West uh, in, in, in Russia, uh, in, in the recent year, uh, they uh, def- definitely, uh, some of them, uh, changed, uh, dramatically changed their, uh, uh, the, the content of their speeches. So some of them just decided to, to follow this, this, this status stream and now they basically uh, basically repeat after Putin and others about the existential threat, about uh, the uh, neo-Nazi regime in Kiev, about uh, NATO as a cancer. There was uh, recently an interview uh, by one Sergei Karaganov, 
one of the key uh, foreign policy experts in Russia, who was considered like the fifth column, the uh, puppet of the West, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But now he says like something like uh, NATO is cancer, so we have to to fight cancer or something like this. It was well ridiculous, actually. But and I, I didn't expect uh, this person to uh, to use this uh, to use this uh, uh, phraseology. But at the same time, you know, uh, we should not uh, uh, forget about psychology. So uh, there is a fear. There is indeed an existential fear. And of course, to beat this fear, there are different options. And one of the options is to, you know, to unify yourselves with Leviathan, with the state, right? Because uh, we have a big state and supposedly strong state. And uh, uh, if we are with the state, if we are protected by the state, or at least we believe that we are protected by the state, then, well, we do not afraid. And uh, to not afraid to beat this fear, of course, you have to also borrow and sort of internalize the rhetoric of the state. That's why many people still convince themselves that uh, indeed it was necessary. It was the only option to uh, to attack Ukraine because otherwise uh, Ukraine would have attacked us. Well, uh, it's important, uh, of course, well, uh, frankly speaking, it is impossible to attack uh, for Ukraine to attack Russia on Ukrainian territory, right? But that's it doesn't matter, right? Well, but what they say, what they are saying is not that Ru- that Ukraine would attack Russia on its own territory, but that Ukraine within NATO structures would position, would be able to at least theoretically position some kind of military installations around Kharkov, where from where you get like less than five minutes if a missile is shot out to reach Moscow or other, you know, strategic centers, if you like, of the Russian Federation. And that, uh, you know, Russia, sorry, not Russia, but NATO was leveraging or has been, because it continues leveraging Ukraine against Russia. And that this is a process within which all those conflicts have developed, culminating in 2014 and then, you know, in 2015 with the separation, with the separatist movements in Donbass, and then, you know, the killing of the 15,000 people. And you know the story. I don't have to explain it to you, right? But um, I, I just wonder, like, you know, for many people, including for myself, quite honestly, I mean, it sounds pretty convincing. So if you want to go against that, then what is, what is your argument? What are your arguments? Like, you say this is yes, a lie or you say this is something, this is a manipulation? What, do you, what is your, your re- response to that? And another question to make it clearer. Let's say you are Vladimir Putin. What would you have done differently? What he should have done in the situation? What was your idea? Because it's very easy to, to, uh, to say, well, this were, was a bad idea. But what was the option? Which we, we share that. I mean, I, I, I really think that. it was a bad course, idea. And I want to believe that there were other ways. I'm just... going to tell you what I would have done because I dedicated much thought and I would engage in some sort of counterfactual history and I would tell my my ideas about what could have been done differently, but I'm very curious to learn what is your idea. Uh, well, uh, speaking about blood and soil, uh, in today's world, blood is more important than soil, obviously. But blood, I mean the lives of people, right? Not the territories. Russia does not need more territories. Russia is a big country. And even... Uh, even though the majority of the Russian territory is uh, is impossible to live in because it's damn cold there. But even in central Russia, I mean, west uh, of the Urals, there are many places people can live. So my idea would be that if indeed we need more people, more blood, and if indeed we believe that 
Ukraine is run by Nazis, by Russophobes, etc. And sometimes, of course, uh, certain decisions by uh, by Kiev they were utterly Russophobic, no, no doubt about it. But still, if what if we want to save people, well, I would launch a large scale resettlement uh, uh, plan uh, with uh, those Russian speakers in Ukraine who want to leave Ukraine, who do not think that it's their true homeland, and just invite them uh, here in Russia. It would be, of course, is, as we now, I think, understand, it would be cheaper than what we have now, both uh, in, yes. the, in, in the terms of human lives, of blood, and in terms, of course, of uh, economic damage. But uh, those people to whom I uh, addressed this idea, even prior to the uh, to the outbreak of this of this conflict, but when there were certain rumors that uh, Russia is concentrated its forces on on the borders of Ukraine, like uh, uh, in the late twenty twenty one, right? So those people uh, who were, let's say, uh, uh, is it politically correct to call them boomers? They said, "Oh, but it's their land." You cannot force people to, to, to leave their land. I said, well, uh, if the price is your life, then it's, it's, it's a good idea to, to leave your land and to, to go elsewhere. I mean, if we speak about, about human lives. That's it. And uh, if we uh, like return to the issue of like NATO membership, et cetera, et cetera, my central question like uh, to all of the to, to clarify, the question is why? Uh, for example, uh, NATO has certain capabilities to attack, like uh, Moscow, St. Petersburg, and other cities. Yes, can, but why? What's the point? I mean, if you have a gun, it doesn't mean that you will use it ever in your life. Like, yeah, uh, well, but that's a bit demagogical yes. because it's obvious that the West has been hating Russia for a long time now and has been kind of, you know, the Brzezinski plan. And now even when you look at, you know, when you look at this summit of the, some kind of democratic opposition, they call it People's Assembly or something in Poland, Russian People's Assembly or something like that. And they put together some dissidents, many of them I've never heard of, by the way, but they are putting them together and they are drafting a constitution which is going to be enforced once they come to power in Russia, where uh, the first point or one of the first points, okay, is supposed to be the uh, the kind of... the. the the explanation, the laying out of the legal way for each of the nations on each of the republics that formed the Russian Federation today to depart from the Federation. So, I mean, there there obviously is that sentiment on the part of the West. Like, I don't want to exaggerate it. I realize that, you know, some people who defend Russia today, they also use it in a demagogical manner. But in fact, this has always been a steady pattern. At least I have not seen many exceptions from it. Maybe maybe you can give us other reference points. But for me, it's clear that if they had a chance at one point, I'm not saying that they would necessarily shoot out those missiles from Kharkov. I don't know whether they would do this. But if they if they get a chance, they will stop you know, Russia in the back, in the in the front somehow, because this is like, this is their thinking. You know, when you look at the Polish, uh, the Polish former prime minister, uh, sorry, not prime minister, but the former, former uh, foreign minister, Anna Fotyga, she's now a Euro parliamentarian. And uh, she said that according to her knowledge, uh, she cannot see anything 
like uh, I mean, not not that she cannot see, but she doesn't acknowledge anything like Russian gas or Russian oil or Russian coal. She says that this coal, this oil, this uh, you know, all the resources, the natural resources, they belong to the different nations that form the Russian Federation and to different republics. There is nothing like Russian gas, so they are going a step further beyond what used to be their main sort of talking point, which is Russia is not a state, but a gas station masquerading as a state. So, I mean, I can see a pure thread, pure clean, maybe, clean thread of hatred and and, and disdain for Russia. So I think that, you know... It's, it's logical for the Russians to, to want to defend themselves from it. And, and, you know, perhaps in your opinion, they are psychologically overdoing it. But, you know, this is a logical reaction. Or maybe I'm getting it wrong. Please push back if you feel I'm, I'm kind of confused here. Well, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a special kind of logic, actually, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because uh, you, you do not have the second planet Earth. You have only one. Uh, and you cannot uh, say that, well, uh, maybe if we... If we uh, postponed this uh, military operation until like one or two years, they, they would attack us. We do not know. At the same time, uh, I mean, if you believe in all these things, uh, basically, and if you believe or you, you have enough intelligence to understand that uh, the West would rally around Ukraine and you would indeed have to fight with the collective West, but if you estimate the uh, the manpower, uh, the the uh, attacking abilities of the Western armies and the Russian army, you know that it's not a good idea to start a fight, right? So uh, it's it's not well. It, it's much more than just Ukraine. Mm-hmm. That's it. So w- once again, I'm not saying that all people in the world are as humanistic as I am, and there are indeed some uh, crazies uh, who dream about like dismantling Russia. Uh, but once again, uh, it's not the problem of the West. It's the problem of Russia, because if Russia had, a, uh, uh, if uh, Russian uh, politicians had uh, freedom of uh, expression inside Russia, all those like separatists, uh, they would be ridiculed by uh, moderate opposition figures. And so they would not need to. Uh, they would not need to become more aggressive and more uh, more crazy, so that's it. I mean, this uh, this hatred and this uh, tendency towards, let's say, uh, negative uh, negative or like uh, attitudes or even attitude, uh, uh, self hating attitudes towards Russia. I mean, they derive, among other things, from the inability of uh, normal, let's say, or moderate Russian opposition uh, figures, parties, uh, Alexei Navalny, right. Uh, comes to mind uh, to to speak their mind and to compete for votes inside Russia, and of course, uh, what can they do? Well, they can immigrate and then convince their uh, like uh, some authorities in Poland or at State Department that they uh, really have some some influence on let's say national minorities in Russia and give me some money to to organize a conference in which I would uh, propose a plan of dismantling Russia. I mean that's. That's that's it. It's I mean it's uh, you know it's it's hard to imagine uh, uh, let's say uh, under the uh, democratic president in the United States, for example, uh, a, a, a forum of uh, Republicans in Poland or in Russia, right? Because they can well organize their forums in the United States in their own country, 
the same applies to other countries in which it's possible to uh, to compete uh, ideologically. That's it. So uh, it's yes, of course, I'm not uh, I'm not happy with these uh, with these fringe groups, but at the same time, I know at least one source of their uh, uh, of their of their existence, and I, I, unfortunately, this source lies in Russia and not elsewhere. Yes, this is very interesting. I haven't got a chance in this segment of the show to give me my idea what should have been done and how things should have been handled. But I will give you my idea in the second segment. Thank you so much for um, this perspective. is indeed very interesting. Thank you so much, Boyan, for the insightful questions to the viewers. If you liked what you saw and you think it's worth it, your time, your effort, please go to our Patreon page and consider subscribing to our channel and maybe help us with a donation. We rely on your help. We have a small community of donors to whom we are very very thankful and see you in the next uh, segment.